You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. We continue this morning, uh, our next to last week in the current series, Glorious Design, um, Glorious Design. Uh, This morning, talking about marriage and the gospel, marriage and the gospel. So uh, we're going to talk about what marriage is and therefore what marriage is not. And my hope is that uh, wherever you are, married, single, um, whether you're uh, maybe experiencing same-sex attraction, whether you've got uh, people in your family uh, who are asking questions about uh, what you think regarding same-sex marriage, that wherever you find yourself this morning, God will speak to you and you will find Him true, right, and just, and helpful. In June of 2002, June of 2002, uh, the synod, the, the meeting, the gathering of the Anglican Diocese of New Westminster, New Westminster, gathered. Um, And over the course of their time together, they authorized their bishop, their bishop to create a service that would bless same-sex unions, to create a service that would bless same-sex unions. In other words, to create a marriage ceremony and the liturgy for that for same-sex unions. Uh, A number of Anglican clergymen and churchmen got up in response to that and walked out, declaring themselves to be out of communion with that particular Anglican diocese uh, and appealing to the Bishop of, or Archbishop of Canterbury. One of the men who walked out that day um, was the highly influential evangelical theologian, J.I. Packer, J.I. Packer, great man, saintly man. Um, He just passed away in 2020 at the age of 93, Um, was absolutely sharp right up until the very end, Uh, wrote some 50 plus books, uh, one or two of which we may have out there in the bookstore. I don't know. I know we've got one of his shorter uh, biographies out there, but remarkable man who spent the first half of his life in England, second half in Canada, was a uh, professor at Regent College in Vancouver, probably most influential among uh, Christians in the United States, but certainly one of the most gifted and influential um, Protestant theologians that the church has produced in the last hundred years. I was listening to a podcast interview uh, this week from a few years back about that time uh, where Packer was being uh, asked about it. And he said, when you have to make a hard stand, sometimes people believe that the particular issue around which you're making a hard stand is maybe larger in your own uh, life, in your own mind than it really is because of the stand you felt you needed to make. But he said this, in any theological controversy, you have to speak as strongly as upholding the truth requires. I do think this issue is fundamental. To bless or celebrate or embrace a same-sex 
relationship or union is certainly a gospel issue. Now, not long after that, there was such a, uh, this uh, became such news and, and the awareness of it was so widespread, not just because of what was happening, uh, what was happening in the Anglican church um, in England and beyond in the U.S. and in Canada, but because of who walked out and primarily because J.I. Packer walked out, who's known uh, for not only being an influential theologian, but for being uh, extremely uh, gentle and cordial uh, and concerned that Christians uh, accommodate one another and that we have communion and community and fellowship uh, and missional endeavors across denominational lines. So he ended up writing as uh, he was, I think at the time, one of the managing editors of Christianity Today, I wrote an article entitled, Why I Walked. You can still, if you want to Google that and read the whole thing, uh, you can do that. It'll come up very, very quickly. J.I. Packer, Why I Walked. But he, he says this, and I, I just thought it was a brilliant summation in a couple of sentences. Why did I walk out on the others? Because this decision, taken in its context, falsifies the gospel of Christ, abandons the authority of Scripture, jeopardizes the salvation of fellow human beings, and betrays the church in its God-appointed role as the bastion and bulwark of divine truth. Uh, One commenter on Packer's article said, for Packer, affirming biblical authority is meant not merely to provoke a debate, which is most often the case now. Anytime somebody says, do you believe the Bible's inerrant? They're looking for an argument. They're they're looking uh, to, to get you worked up. Affirming biblical authority is meant not merely to provoke a debate, but to give direction to an ethical life. Church, there's no way to separate biblical truth from our sort of walking path into an ethical life. There's just no way to do it. So what I want us to do is not simply um, deal with the issue of marriage and the gospel around uh, what we have to say no to. We've gotten pretty good at just yelling no, no, no. And we're pretty bad and pretty theologically uninformed when it comes to helping people understand what it is that they're invited to say yes to. What it is uh, that is beautiful and good and right that God has created for human beings. And the one place in Scripture where God's design and purpose for marriage is on display, I think, more clearly than anywhere else is in the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I want to ask you to turn there now. Ephesians chapter 5, we will begin with verse 21. Begin with verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her to make her holy 
cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his wife and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, but before we talk about what marriage is not and what is not marriage, let's talk a bit about what marriage is because any sort of cursory view of the church itself and of marriages in the church would say, we need about as much help on this as anyone else does. We need about as much help on this as anyone else does. And anyone who's married would say, yes, we need about as much help on this as anyone else does. Let me start with the biggest, the biggest truth uh, of Ephesians chapter five with regard to marriage. And it is simply this, that marriage is ultimately, ultimately, not exclusively, but ultimately designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. Marriage is ultimately designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, Ephesians 5 is the most expansive place where God tells us what he intends marriage to do and what it's all about. But this metaphor of Christ and his church, God and his people, and their union displayed in marriage is really found throughout the Bible. It shows up negatively, if you remember, in Exodus in the golden calf incident, right? Moses is taking too long on the mountain. They're like, where's he at? Where's he at? Where's he at? For, forget Moses. Oh, what's his name uh, that brought us out of slavery? We're going to do this uh, ourselves. Um, remember when Moses comes down the mountain and confronts his brother about it? And Aaron goes, I don't know. We just put some gold in and out popped a calf. Um, don't really know what happened. But the description of them there and their act is adultery, is adultery. It's, it's actually uh, unfaithful. It's actually whoring is the word there that's used. It, it's, pict- it's a picture of an unfaithful spouse, what was going on there. We see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Hosea. All of these prophetic books paint a picture of Israel's idolatry as adultery. It paints a, they, they paint a picture of Israel's idolatry as, as one that exists in the, the metaphorical relationship of a union, a marriage between God and his people. This is why Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom, or we would just say the groom in the New Testament. Because in Hosea and in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and Ezra, the husband was to come and clean up the bride and save her, and Jesus fulfills this Old Testament hope of the Messiah. Jesus' work enables us uh, to be the faithful bride that we're intended to be. And yet, Paul, 
Paul is not confused though. He's honest and open about the fact that we still, we still struggle with faithfulness just like Israel did. We still struggle to be faithful men and women in marriage and faithful marriages reflecting God's character. So here's the sense that God created our tiny little human marriages to image and reflect the big marriage of God and his people. Your tiny little human marriage exists ultimately to reflect to the world Christ's union with the church, with his people. Now, this is not the only image the Bible uses for God and his people, but it's the one Scripture returns to again and again, that that our tiny human marriages are given by God to be living, breathing demonstrations of the gospel to those around us. Um, Rachel Gilson, in her book, Born Again This Way, um, which really, I don't describe many books as a page turner, but it is. We have a few copies of it out in the bookstore, but it's her story of experiencing same-sex attraction from the earliest uh, age, of being involved in same-sex relationships, of coming to faith in Christ as an undergraduate student at Yale, and then struggling with what do I do with sexuality on the other side of coming to faith in Christ, right? And she had some, some Yale friends who said, oh, no, 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 the, the Bible doesn't really uh, have an issue with this. We've misunderstood these texts. Let's get, let me give you a packet on it. And Rachel said she went back to her dorm room and jumped in and she said, I love a good packet. Read through the packet and she said, but as I was studying um, the, the biblical texts then, she said, I just couldn't I couldn't get from them to to where this packet was. She said, I was being trained to be a historian and to take serious ancient documents, and I I just couldn't get there. She since learned Greek and Hebrew and says, I definitely can't get there now. Uh, It appeared to me then that the text meant what the text said. And she said, so very quickly, as a young Christian, um, I came to to understand, okay, uh, God doesn't approve of this. What do I do with this, and how do I, I live with this? And as she studied, she said, you, and I think she's right, you can't, uh, you can't look at sex in the Bible very long before you get to marriage. You just can't. And so as she runs across this, this great uh, big V vocation for human beings to be uh, largely, not everybody, in fact, the New, Te- the New Testament is uh, great at elevating a singleness to a place that it was not elevated in uh, that culture and saying we have uh, two options, but God creates man and woman to be united in the great vocation of bearing fruit, of producing children, and bearing his image to the world, to his world. And so Rachel begins to say, okay, if, if my primary sexual inclination and attraction is toward people of the same sex, but I know now I'm a Christ follower, and I know that God has given this, this big V vocation, um, she said she sort of began to th- think about things a little bit differently. And then it went wildly off course when she was on a mission trip and met a young man who began to pursue her. And she was like, I didn't know what to do with that at all. Uh, she got back and uh, she began to talk with some close Christian friends. She said, I know I, I, know I enjoy him. I know I love him as a brother in Christ. And, and then I, I find that there's some, some feelings there, some attraction. It's not like this was, but it's enough of that. Um, and they since now are 10 plus years Uh, happily married uh, with at least one child I know and 
she's very honest about her own struggles still, that it's not that her inclination toward attraction to people of the same sex just went away. It's that she found in God's goodness, at least for her, that she could experience, and this will sound weird to us, but this is where human messiness is, that she could experience enough attraction for her husband to live out, for them together to live out faithfully this mandate together. And it's just, the the book is a beautiful testimony to Christ's faithfulness. And she'll be the first to say, not everybody can experience that uh, um, attraction across sexes if your primary attraction bid to the same sex. But all of of her journey uh, began to take off theologically when she began to understand the reality of human sexuality in marriage and where the gospel is in this. Can I be united to a man in a way faithfully that helps us live out the mandate that God's given for marriage and demonstrates to the world as well as we can as broken human beings, God's relationship to his people. This is, this is why marriage functions like it does. Look back at verses 28. Well, let's go down to, uh, let's go down to 31. So in verse 31, the apostle Paul's reaching back reaching back into the Genesis narrative, chapter two. And he says, for this reason, quoting Genesis chapter two, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There's a unique kind of union there. And then in verse 32, Paul makes this phenomenal statement. This is a profound mystery. And what he's saying is that the relationship between a husband and and a wife is a unique type of relationship. It's a unique type of relationship that points to something greater, something more profound. What I am talking about is Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Mar- marriage is supposed to be faithful because God's relationship with his people is faithful. Marriage is supposed to be the the beginning of a new household, either through uh, biological reproduction or through adoption, because God's relationship with his people is fruitful. It produces a new household, a new family. Marriage is supposed to include sexual pleasure and intimacy, because God's relationship with his people is deeply pleasurable and deeply intimate. Again, and I, I don't know that I could say this too much, um, but our little marriages, the little marriages between a man and a woman are meant to reflect the big marriage between Christ and the church and cause us to look forward to the day when we experience the fulfillment, the fullness of that union with Christ. Because marriage is not simply intended to point us to Christ, it's also intended to leave us wanting. Marriage is designed to disappoint. It's designed to disappoint. It's designed um, to help express to you the truth that nothing on this earth, including a beautiful, faithful spouse, can, can fulfill a place in you that only Christ can fulfill. And I'm telling you right now, some of you have tension in your marriages right now because you are expecting your spouse to do for you something that he or she simply cannot do. They are not created to do. 
They are incapable of fulfilling what you're wanting them to fulfill. And Jesus comes on the scene after all of this Old Testament language about God and his people, all of this marriage language. He comes on the scene as the bridegroom who's come to claim God's wandering people. Uh, Rachel Gelson, who I referenced earlier, said, even if I continue to experience same-sex attraction the rest of my life, the question for me was, can I be faithful to the calling God's given me? Either faithful singleness or faithful marriage as God gives it between a man and a woman. Because all Christians are called to say no to temptation and yes to the calling that Christ has given us. That's the same across the board for all of us as disciples. I'll probably mess this quote up because I don't have it written down. It's just in my brain. But it is in the bottom of the sermon notes sections in the app. And if you haven't checked that out, maybe you don't care anything about that. Care about it just for this series. And go down and look at that. Um, You can uh, watch some and listen to some of of Rachel's story. But one of the quotes she says in there, she says, I've been happily married for over 10 years now. And any time I experience any degree of attraction for someone outside my marriage, it is always for another woman. And yet, when people ask me how, how I identify, I honestly say married. With the same ups and downs, the same problems and struggles that every other marriage has, and with the same hope, the faithfulness and the power of the Holy Spirit. The faithfulness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Marriage is ultimately meant to display for the world the relationship between Christ and his church, between Christ. So Hollywood has this one version of it. This one version of marriage where basically all we're doing is experiencing romance and sexual fulfillment on the beach while the kids that we've already created are bringing us breakfast with fresh fruit. That's not a biblical picture of marriage. It's just not a biblical. And you're laughing hard because you've been married more than eight minutes. You know that. Just not how it works. Right, but if we, man, if we could go back to the Bible, and that's what Rachel said, she kept uh, yearning for uh, in her final years at Yale, just going back to the Bible. But what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about human sexuality? What does the Bible teach me about marriage? What am I to do? Because Jesus is now my Savior, so He's my Lord. Right. So the question of of who do I belong to and who do I listen to, supremely has been answered. I belong to Him, and I listen to Him supremely. So I want to go there and I want to find out about this. Marriage is also always sex differentiated. I know that is a big word. It's just a long word. It's not very fancy, but sex differentiated involving male and female throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture and throughout human history. It's not that there weren't loving, caring, gentle, um, both Uh, in agreement with same-sex relationships, there absolutely were. And there were in the Greco-Roman world and there were in Jesus' day. No one, no one would have pretended they were marriages. No one. Marriage is always in Scripture and has been throughout history sex-differentiated, involving male and female. Let's go back to, uh, to verse 22. 
Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. I will say verse 23 requires some work. Because the husband is not the head of his wife in all the ways that Christ is the head of the church. Uh, And in Greek, head can mean many things, just like it can in English. It can mean the start of something. It can mean the top of something. Um, It can mean all kinds of things. So that requires some thought. But 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word. It's sex differentiated. It is from Genesis 1 and 2 all the way through Scripture, all the way to the picture of the marriage feast in Revelation. Rebecca McLaughlin said, God designed us, God designed us so that new human beings come when men and women come together come to be when men and women come together. This is the original diversity. Creation of new life comes through love across this difference. Love across this difference. Love across this difference. Christopher Yawn said, Jesus tethers the creation of male and female in Genesis 1.27 to the creation of one flesh, marriage in Genesis 2.24. This beautifully illustrates that God both differentiates male and female at creation and unites males and females in marriage. Jesus is affirming in Matthew 19 that when God made male and female, our creator already had in mind the marital union that followed. Now, let me say this and then we'll go back. Husbands are called four times in the New Testament to love their, their wives. 525, 28, and 33 that we just read. Colossians 319, and are called and commanded to honor them also in 1 Peter 3, 7. Um, and yet, verse 22, husbands or wives submit to your husbands has gotten just sort of stuck in the mouths of a lot of women today. It's hard to, hard to swallow. It's not a favored passage of most women today. When was the last time you saw a married Christian woman who was drinking out of a mug that said, wives, submit to your husbands? <laughs> Ephesians 2.22. How many times is the last time you saw a young woman with Ephesians 2.22 tattooed right there on her arm? Maybe you go into a house and you see a sign that the husband hasn't bought that says, Ephesians 2.22, wives submit to your husbands. Um, I think there are a lot of good reasons for that. I think the inability of husbands to even attempt often to love our wives like Christ loves the church, to understand what that sort of sacrificial um, self dying or dying to self-love looks like day in and day out, minute in and minute out, hour after hour can make this tough. But there is no, there's no way around admitting and acknowledging that this has been used to sanction abuse, both by husbands and pastors. Absolutely has. Christianity Today just released 
uh, an article this last week. I'm looking at my watch for the date, not the time. This last week, um, coming out of John MacArthur's church, and I will say this, you know, who knows, we'll see, but I know that Christianity today typically is extremely cautious about vetting what they put out um, of multiple cases of women coming to the church for quote-unquote biblical counseling and being told to return and stay with husbands who are physically abusing them, mentally and emotionally abusing them, abusing their children out of a warped sense and a, and a, uh, a, a false hermeneutic, a false lens of interpretation in Scripture. So that's just extremely recent, but it absolutely has been used to sanction abuse. But let me just say this, wives, women in this room, this passage gives you great dignity. It gives you great dignity. All Christians, if you look at verse 21, are called to submit to one another, all Christians. So there is a sense as brother and sister in Christ, Sharon and I are called to mutual submission. In fact, I would say that is first because we are first followers of Christ, second husband and wife. So as a Christian man and a Christian woman in our marriage, there is a sense in which biblically we are commanded to a life of mutual submission, to a life of mutual submission. And the, and the fact that wives get about three verses of instruction here and husbands get all the rest, I understand as a husband, just by the amount of having to tell me again and again things that Sharon has to do, probably why Paul worked it out this way. But I will say the weight of this passage is not on the submission of wives. It's on the sacrificial love of husbands. The sacrificial love of husbands. And so the question here about submission for wives is what does it look like uniquely in a marriage for wives to live this out to the glory of God and to the good of the world who looks at how a wife submits to her husband and sees in that some kind of metaphor, even if they don't understand, of how the church submits to the Lordship of Christ and his sacrificial love for us. And I have to say this, this will be different based on each marriage. It just is. It's gonna be different based on um, the uniqueness of personalities, of backgrounds, of experiences, seasons of life, strengths, weaknesses, uh, ages, health. I could go on and on. Part of the problem with us trying to do like uh, husband-wife mentoring in the church, not that it can't be done and it can't be done well, it is often not done well, but it's not that it can't be, is that we tend to say, hey, your marriage, this is what marriage should look like. And what we're saying is this is what my marriage looks like and yours should look like this. But that's not how marriage works. We're not robots. Again here, I find Rachel Gilson helpful. She said, we need God's spirit, God's word, and God's people to navigate these tender places well, to navigate the tender places of how husbands and wives relate to one another in a, in a way that honors God, that does display um, uh, imperfectly, but uh, effectively the relationship that Christ has to his church and in ways that lead to human flourishing. We need God's spirit. We need God's word. We need God's people. We need Christ-centered friends pressing in with us to navigate these tender places well. There may be good reasons why this gets stuck in the mouth of some, of some women, right? 
So it, it would behoove us to take time and to listen. And if you find like something in you as you read this, wives submit to your husbands, you're like, oh, there's something that comes up in me, right? I just, I leave, I'm ready for a fight with my man. You know, I can't wait to get out of here and get home because I'm gonna find something he does wrong quickly. And then it's on, right? I mean, if, if you feel that in you, I would ask you, man, think about that, ladies. Think about what is going on here. Why, why is this? What is it about this verse, my background, my constitution, maybe our marriage that causes me to struggle here? And I would say the reality is, with Ephesians 5 as with any other particular passage, we need the whole Bible. We need the whole Bible to address Christian ethics. The whole Bible to address Christian ethics. Marriage is always sex differentiated involving male and female. Marriage is ultimately designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. And I'll say this, marriage is throughout the Bible, one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. One man and one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. For one lifetime. In this, we see uh, at a more basic level than the portrayal of Christ and his church, some of God's goodness and his purposes for marriage of procreation and pleasure and partnership, doing life together at the most intimate and closest level. Now, I have to say this at this point. I know that the church, especially in our um, century, really starting um, early, mid-90s and on as the, the steam and the movement and the agenda of uh, gay marriage, same-sex marriage began to pick up and pick up and pick up and states began to legalize it. And then eventually uh, the Supreme Court, uh, which I, I believe uh, with all seriousness and respect was a group of men and women who were morally confused and theologically bankrupt uh, making a decision that is uh, not only contrary uh, to natural law and contrary to the Word of God, but contrary to the flourishing of human society. And I could build that out later for you um, if you want to. But as that has picked up, the churches, uh, a lot of times when you hear Christians talk, that it's like they see gay marriage as the great threat to marriage. So I just have to, to say with all honesty, we do a pretty good job of trashing marriage ourselves. We just, we do. Um, we have a hard time with sacrificial love. We have a hard time with joyful submission. We have a hard time with mutual respect. We have a hard time with faithfulness, right? Because it, this is a human issue. Sin has fractured all of who we are. And as Jesus comes into our life, part of the beauty of sanctification across years is he's putting back together broken pieces. He's making ways straight that were crooked. He's aligning our hearts and our minds around truth. But all through Scripture, marriage is one man, one woman, becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That's why the Apostle Paul and Jesus both reach all the way back to the opening chapters of Genesis as they are discussing marriage in their day because there's a consistency to it all throughout Scripture. Therefore, if this is what marriage is, we have to say a couple things about what it is not. Let me start with this. Making marriage an ultimate is idolatry. Making marriage an ultimate is idolatry. 
and idolatry clearly is sin. Um, This is the Jerry Maguire view of marriage. You complete me. If that's true, there's not much to you, if I could say with all honesty. But also, you notice that's what he said before he got her and married her. After marriage, he would have said, you did not complete me. Right? We can't complete one another. In fact, if you don't work to get yourself whole before uniting yourself with someone else, then you're going to find yourself in a codependent mess. And there's nothing worse, personally, for me than having to be at dinner with a codependent couple. Ugh. You know? It's like, would you like an appetizer? No, thank you. Uh, we would like a ticket and some drinks, and we'll go. I, I'm going to get back here because I'm going to get in trouble. Um. Marriage is not the goal of, of human existence, right? Uh, given given your, your particular background, there's a point maybe where you thought that, man, I just can't get away. I can't wait. I'm going to get married and then this and then that and then the other. And then you got married and what happened? I don't, it's not that marriage isn't good. It is good. It's designed by God. It is God's will for the majority, not all, not all, but for the majority of human beings for good and godly purposes, for gospel-centered purposes, to be a gospel witness. You realize that throughout most of history and around most of the world today, people don't own their own Bibles, much less multiple translations of them and commentaries if they want to see how scholars have worked at it. They just haven't. So God in his goodness and in his beauty created multiple ways of speaking gospel truth to societies and to individuals all throughout human history. Marriage has been one of the primary ways that God's able to say, you want to know what my relationship with my people is like? Look at the sacrificial love a husband gives to his wife and look at the submission and respect she then gives to him and you'll see an interchange. You'll see a a mirrored image, though possibly faded, likely faded, of what my relationship with my people is like. Marriage isn't the goal of human existence. It's not the mountaintop or the destination. Rather, it's a signpost pointing to something else, to something greater, something that is ultimate, something that is ultimate. That's why you can be in a marriage that's struggling. And if you are, fight for it. It's, it's along the lines of, of what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Rome. As much as it is up to you, be at peace with all people. There's a point in marriage where it may not be up to you anymore. So this is not about guilt or shame. As much as it is up to you, and you can, fight for your marriage. But fight for it rightly. Get back in Scripture and say, what's its ultimate purpose because maybe we're not experiencing a bunch of this or, or a bunch of that right now. Maybe Hollywood has told me and books have told me it should look like this. But what has God said about marriage? What has he said about the purpose of it? Now, not only is it not the ultimate and when treated so, becomes idolatry, which is sin. Looking at what marriage is in Ephesians 5, and I'll be very clear about this in just a minute means that same-sex marriage is a biblical contradiction. Same-sex marriage is a biblical contradiction, which is sin. Even if we took out all the prohibition passages in Scripture, the, the, the big main six between the Old and the New Testament, 
Let me read this uh, positively to help you begin to understand. This is from the Secular Creed, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's small book. This signpost to Christ is why marriage is male and female and why husbands and wives are called to different roles. Like Christ in the church, it's love across difference. Like Christ in the church, it's love built on sacrifice. Like Christ in the church, it's a flesh-uniting, life-creating, never-ending, exclusive love. Marriage is meant to point us to Christ, but it is meant to point us to Christ across difference. Across difference, because men and women are different as Christ and his church are different. And as a gospel demonstration to the world, this is what Paul says again in verse 32. This is a profound mystery, this issue of marriage. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. As a gospel demonstration to the world, marriage unites two non-interchangeable parties. Two non-interchangeable parties who have different tasks. Christ's faithful, self-sacrificing love for his church should be seen in how a husband relates to his wife. And the church's respect and submission toward Christ should be seen in how a wife responds to her husband. Therefore, our marriages, your marriage, my marriage, all human marriages, because marriage is an institution of God that was here long before nation states ever existed, right? Nation states have not been around that long, a few hundred years as we know them. This is God's institution. And our little marriages must have to faithfully portray the relationship we see throughout the Old Testament, uses metaphor in the prophets from Genesis on and in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 and supremely on display for us here with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 to faithfully portray this relationship to the world. Two non-interchangeable parties who each have different tasks in the marriage are required. Husbands are called to sacrificially love their wives. Wives are called to respect and submit to their husbands. And these unique roles are sex-specific. They are sex-specific. And if we try to scramble the image with two husbands, we're, we're painting for the world a picture of Christ who needs to save Christ or Christ who needs to sacrificially love himself, which is theological heresy and basic rational absurdity. Or two wives were telling the world that the church needs to respect and submit to herself. Both of these are extremely problematic. Placing, placing Ephesians 5, this passage, alone within the broader narrative of marriage reflecting to the world God's unique relationship with the church, along with the consistent prohibition text that we find in the Old Testament and in the New Testament on same-sex behavior, reveals marriage between two people of the same sex to be clearly against the revealed will of God and sin. It is an impossibility for two human beings of the same sex to come together in, in any way that reflects the biblical design, purpose, and mandate for marriage. Now, I have to say this at this point. 
There are clearly many male-female marriages that do not reflect the gospel well. Have any of you ever known of a male-female marriage, even among professing Christians, that did not reflect this well? Right? So it's not just that same-sex relationships and so-called marriages can't reflect it. It's that we often don't, in our sinfulness, reflect it well. However, still, a truly biblical understanding of marriage reveals same-sex marriage to be an impossibility in sin. And I've read Matthew Vines, and I've read the other guys who have really tried to produce a hermeneutic that will view human sexuality and marriage differently, and I just, I find them extremely lacking theologically and biblically. So this brings us to this question, okay? What if you agree with this? What if you can say, okay, I absolutely agree with that, but what about, what about just attending the wedding of a friend? What about attending the, the, the same-sex wedding of a friend? Uh, marriage is the law of the land now. Or attending the same-sex wedding of a family member. Would we do that? Should we do that? My answer to you on that is no. No, you should not. And I understand the struggle emotionally, the sincere struggle to say, but we want to affirm our love for them. We uh, want to support them. We want to be there as active Christian witnesses in their lives. Maybe when they do have questions, when they do have issues. I understand that. I have wrestled with this and struggled with it. We were living in one of the first states to legalize marriage. Um, long before the Supreme Court did when I was having to wrestle with this. Um, But why is it that we go to weddings? It's certainly not to have fun. (laughs) If the bride and groom are winners, you might get good cake. But aside from that, you're going to dress up in clothes that are not comfortable. You're going to go somewhere wondering how long this ceremony is going to last, feeling almost a little bad for the bride and groom because you know what's coming. And then you may go to, I, hey, marriage is great. I'm just saying, it's work. That's why you're all laughing. Um, the potential of being seated at a reception with people you don't know, which is the worst. All right? All for the chance, maybe, at getting to eat good cake. But then they do stuff weird, you know, like Butterfinger cake with, uh, with jelly Hot Wheel cars inside it. And you're like, can't anyone do anything normal anymore? But why don't we go to weddings? We attend weddings to affirm and celebrate what is happening. It's the only reason you attend a wedding if you're not family and required to. You attend a wedding to affirm and celebrate what is happening. And church, if, and I mean this if, because I think we, we are radically seeing days now where in uh, the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, we need to check the sincerity of our relationship with Christ. This is where I think genuine followers of Jesus who have pledged our allegiance to him above and before anyone and anything else cannot affirm and celebrate as good 
what we know God describes as sin and as destructive for individual human beings engaged in it and for human flourishing as a whole. We simply cannot do that, will not do that, should not do that. Now, what might this mean? This might mean that you lose relationship with some friends or with a family member, maybe with a child or with a grandchild. But I have to tell you this, love and respect is a street that goes both ways. It is a street that goes both ways. And the same love and respect that your friend or family member wanting to enter a same-sex marriage is demanding of you by coming and blessing that union is the same love and respect that you have every right to demand of them for you living out what you say you believe. This goes both ways. My, my dad is an absolute teetotaler when it comes to alcohol. I'm a tea sometimeser, right? But my dad is an absolute tea teetotaler. He grew up with some alcoholic uncles that were close around and he got to see a, a lot of that and he just isn't gonna touch it. So part of what it means for me to love and respect my dad is that if he comes into town and me and Al Copeland are going to a bar one night, I'm not gonna ask dad to go with me. It's not his thing, right? Cope and I are gonna have fun. Moderate, biblically informed fun, not drunkenness. But I'm not gonna ask my dad. I'm not going to go home and pick up a 12 pack of natural light, which we all know is trailer beer and take it into my parents' house. Now, my mom will bring wine or wine coolers or whatever she wants into the house, but it's her house, right? Let me say this to you. If you have friends who are genuine friends, parents, if you have children, grandparents, if you have grandchildren who love you, they have no more right to ask you to make a decision that runs contrary to some of your deepest held beliefs as Christians, then you have to show up at their wedding at their demand. Does that make sense? They got no more right to ask you to come there than you would have to demand them not do it based on your particular beliefs. This runs both ways. This runs both ways. And there should be love and respect in friendship and family. And there should be the ability to say, look, we're going to do this. We don't see a problem with it. We feel compelled to do it. We're going to do it. We'd love for you to be there. But I understand if you're not. We understand if you're not. Never carry the burden of someone else's decision to estrange themselves from you. Never carry that on your back. Your burden is faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting that he said, whoever lose, loses houses or sons or daughters or mothers or fathers for my name's sake 
will receive far more. These are troubled times we live in, but we've got to have biblical clarity around them. I want to look back to where I started with J.I. Packer. With J.I. Packer. Um, As he was thinking through and asked how he understands homosexual marriage, same-sex marriage unions to be a violation, not just of God's teaching, but of the gospel itself. This was his response, and I think it, it bears hearing for us. And I don't think I put these in the, uh, the sermon notes section of the app, but I'll put them in there later today in case any of you care to have them, um, both from the beginning and the end of the message. He said the gospel message, the message of God's grace, is intended to lead sinful human beings through the practice of discipleship and the powerful action of the Holy Spirit enabling us to do things right that we'd been doing wrong before. It's intended to bring us into the moral and spiritual image of Jesus our Lord. Christ's likeness isn't primarily physical. It's primarily personal. It has to do with the creator or with the character, the outlook, the mindset. It has to do with the practice of love in all relationships, love and justice and wisdom. And if that is so, sanctioning same-sex unions obstructs, counters, and messes up the work of sanctification. And so when we're told in debate that some people who practice so-called same-sex unions are ever so Christ-like in this way or that, It's a confusion, just as one has to speak strongly when one is up against radical error and asked to sanction it, so one has to speak strongly when one is confronted with confusion and needs to sort out lines of thought that have gotten tangled. I think we have a lot of lines of thought that have gotten tangled in the church. And my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we long for nothing more than faithfulness to Christ and his word. That we are willing to declare in word and in deed our supreme allegiance to Christ, to stand on that with great character and great compassion and great courage and trust Jesus for the chips to fall where they may, knowing that he's better. He's better than anything else or anyone else. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. While I'm praying, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. So much ministry happens. All the ministry that happens in this church is fueled ultimately by the faithful biblical giving of our members and regular attenders. You guys are the ones that have enabled us to begin uh, the bookstore in the foyer. And I encourage you, especially if you're a West Ender, you tend to come in here and go out there. I would encourage you to head out here before you go. And this is not so we make profit. We don't make profit. But because I believe that you'll find both, um, I think you'll be impressed both by the selection and the quality of books we have available um, and their helpfulness to you. So go check that out. But your your giving makes that possible. Your giving makes possible the resources that our children are being formed by and taught by. 
Your, your giving makes possible the resources that we're able to pour into people's lives by way of counseling and crisis care and all the week-in and week-out ministry that happens here. So I pray that God blesses you who are givers. I thank you by demonstrating through your giving that your faith is indeed sincere. Let me pray for us. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lmbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today. 